Welcome to the Vintage Grace Sunday Podcast. We hope our series on the book of Revelation will challenge and encourage you to grow closer to God and recognize that He wins. Let this message be a reminder to you of His love for you and the plan that He has for your life. The big idea of Revelation is God wins. He's already won, He is winning, and He will win. Amen? And yet, He's doing it through a bunch of knuckleheads called Vintage Grace. Is anybody insecure out there today? Like, if you're not raising your hand, that's because you're insecure. Like, does anyone else feel insignificant at times? Like, how broken is the world, and yet, God, you want me to make a difference? You want me to engage in this? And and here's the reason I can't help but just get emotional as I hear you as the church choir sing. Because it's not about us. We can't make a difference, but God is. But God has already won, is winning, and will win in the future, and that allows us to even gather as his sent church, the sent ones, to gather together to say, God, what are you doing? How are you moving? How are you leading? Because if you're like me, and I think that you are, there's plenty of times in my life I feel very insignificant, small. I'm overwhelmed by the magnitude of the brokenness in this world, and yet God loves it. And he's creating open doors for every one of us to receive his grace and to give his grace to others. That he's moving in powerful ways in our midst through little things, small things, insignificant things, insignificant people like us. It was a couple years ago, my my son said, dad, I need a paperclip. I'm like, what do you want a paperclip for? Right? Like, what what do you want now, man? And so Carson said, I I need a paperclip because dad, did you hear that one red paperclip can lead to a free house? I'm like, no, I never heard that because that's not true. And yet it is. And so again, we're all learning, we're we're all in this process. And so my son told me the story of this game that the kids play. Maybe you've played it, it's bigger and better. You take something small, this man was just bored. He was probably feeling insignificant. He was sitting at his desk one day and he's like, I wonder if I could trade that red paperclip for a house someday. And he didn't have a dad like me that was a dream crusher that said, no, what a dumb idea. And so he started. In fact, you can Google it and find all about it, but it was incredible. 14 trades that went from one red paperclip to a free house in Canada. Like, come on. This is a real thing. He traded the red paperclip for a fish-shaped pen, a fish-shaped pen for a hand-sculpted doorknob. He just used Craigslist. He threw stuff online and said, who wants to trade? A hand-sculpted doorknob for a Coleman camping stove, a camping stove for a Honda generator, a Honda generator for an instant party, an instant party for a snowmobile, a snowmobile for a trip to British Columbia, a trip to British Columbia for a van, a van for a recording contract, because everyone wants to be a recording artist, right? And then they traded the recording contract for one year's free rent in Phoenix. Now, I think they missed the fine print. You have to live in Phoenix, But again, these trades just went on and on and four more trades and he ended up with a house. And church, I don't know about you, but there's just moments in my life that I feel like, well, all I got is a red paperclip. Did did you guys get your paperclip when you came in today? It was on your seat when you sat down. Most of you missed it. You're like, wait, what? I want a red paperclip. You get a paperclip. You get a paperclip. You get a paperclip, right? Like, and I want to encourage you, just hold on to this paperclip during the sermon. This small, insignificant, meaningless thing actually can change someone's life. 
It's a small door, but it's a large impact. And there's an open door. There's an opportunity that you and I have today as we've gathered, as we go to the word of God, because it's not about us. We don't have to be the hero, amen? We already have a hero. His name is Jesus. But he's entrusted all of us with now a literal and a metaphorical red paper clip. And the question is, do we see that he's the way maker? Do we see that he's moving? Do we see that he's opening up doors all around us? And the problem for us is that we're not looking very well. We're not stewarding what God has entrusted us with. We literally sat on our seats and totally missed the gift that was in front of us. And yet God is moving, God is working. I want to invite you to pull out your Bibles to Revelation chapter three as we continue on in this series about what is God doing behind the scenes. Here's my summary statement for today's text. Jesus has been speaking words and we're in the epistle section of Revelation. We're gonna get to the prophecy later, but these seven weeks we've been zooming in on these letters that Jesus is giving to his church that he loves, that he says, I'm doing something to you and through you. Don't miss it. I'm the way maker, don't miss it. And here's my summary statement. Jesus told us that the harvest was plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's what he told us in Matthew. The harvest plentiful, laborers are few. And the church of Philadelphia may have been few in numbers. They may have been insignificant. They may have not been big, but they did not even have a lot of giftings, but they were faithful. Church, can we be faithful? They were faithful and they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Amen. We already have a hero and his name is Jesus and he is leading through them in ways that they may never know. I'm convinced that God is leading through you right now and he's led through others in ways that you may never know. And here's my hope, church. I love being your pastor. Here's my hope. Could we just be like Philadelphia? Maybe small in numbers, but faithful if few. Led by the spirit of God personally and corporately because here's the deal. He's doing things all around us. He is opening doors. He is taking small things and making them new again. He is taking dead things and making them alive again. His kingdom has come. His will will be done. So church, the question is, are we ready? Amen? I want to be ready. So would you turn Revelation chapter three as we walk through the book, as we look at this letter given to the church of Philadelphia, starting in chapter three, verse seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, he says, write this. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works, Philly. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews, but they are not. They lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before you and your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, church, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, and I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who will dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast, church, to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on it the name of my God and the name of the new city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Spirit of God, we want to have ears to hear. We open our hands often metaphorically to just say, Spirit of God, this is your time. This is your space. This is your place. We give it back to you. You made it. You created it. You designed it. We just want to entrust it back to you. We want to be ready to receive whatever you have for us, Father. Jesus, would you speak? Would you bind Satan from the space, bind lies and distractions and deception? And instead, would we see you? Would we hear from you? And would we be like Philadelphia, faithful? Small in numbers, but faithful and few. For your glory, we ask the Spirit of God speak. And everybody said, amen. Now, I want us to zoom in on Philly. We've got these seven different churches. 
So every week we're doing a little bit of like historical context. What is Philadelphia like? It's not on the East Coast. That's not what we're talking about. This is, is one of the youngest cities in the Roman Empire. It was actually discovered in the two, second century of B.C., it was also one of the smallest cities. In fact, one commentator made a joke. They were like, like God ran out of the, the six big cities, so we had to throw in the seventh small city. And I don't know, as I was studying the, the, a few weeks ago, it was fascinating for me because I feel like we live in a small city. Like I left Orange County and it was a great trade for me. Please hear me. Like I hated that whole perfect weather every day and I hated living in Dodger land. Like there were so many things about SoCal. I feel like God invited me into Northern California, but many of you might not know this, but I really wanted to plant in a big city, Vintage Grace. My wife joked with me. She said, well, that's great. The problem is I'm gonna live in the suburbs. So if you wanna commute to plant a church, that's fine. Well, that's not what church planting looks like. So I chose Jen over the city. It was a good choice. And so we ended up planting this church called Vintage Grace in Eldorado Hills eight years ago, but we live in a really small town. Do you ever know that? You feel that? You see that at the grocery store where it's like everyone's everywhere all the time. And I, I've grown to love it. But I think Philadelphia was this small town. It was the smallest one of the seven. I don't think that Jesus made a mistake. Jesus wasn't like, well, I got to have a seventh city, so why don't I just pick this one? He didn't close his eyes and pick a map. He picked Philadelphia because it was a strategic city. Philadelphia was a real shifty city. In fact, they believed that there was a lot of earthquakes that they experienced. And so literally people, as the earthquakes would come, people in Philadelphia would leave town and go away. Lots of aftershocks until they would come back when everything had kind of like calmed down. And so the more I was praying about Philadelphia, the more I thought about Eldorado Hills, I'm like, that kind of feels like our thing. People come and then they don't like what they get. So they move to Idaho, right? Like, like and then maybe when the aftershocks calm down, they'll come back or maybe not. Philadelphia wasn't a place that people stayed for a long period of time. It was just on their journey. It was just on their road. It wasn't the big time. It wasn't the big town. It was small. It was insignificant. They only had like a red paper clip. But God uses Philadelphia in incredibly powerful strategic ways. In fact, Philadelphia as a city back in, in 17 AD, they were so loved by Caesar. They were so appreciated for their imperial construction after these massive earthquakes that had taken place that Caesar called them the new Caesarea. Neo-Caesarea, like, like he loved it. He said, yeah, you're small, but you're significant. You're small, but you're faithful. You small and you make a difference. Not only did they make a difference, but they were on this royal road. It was this road that would go from Rome to Persia. In fact, it would go right to Susa, which was where the, the Persian king would have lived. And so there was this significant space on the journey. And so I've often joked with people, I live in Northern California, and they were like, oh, what's that like? I was like, yeah, we're the last stop on people's road moving to Idaho. That's been my joke for people, like this whole year. It's just a real thing. We're, the, we're California's last chance for someone before that they moved to Tennessee. And so when I think about this, here's what I love. God is doing something to us and through us, just like he did in Philadelphia. He's doing something no matter how long we steward our relationships or our time or our treasure and our talent, no matter how small and significant it is, God is doing something because part of the way that the gospel got to Persia was because of Philadelphia. This small, insignificant, young town. And so I just can't help but see parallels for us as this small, young church that really just wants to be faithful. That just wants to say, God, do whatever you want to us and through us. Would your gospel fill us and would your gospel compel us? Would it send us by your grace and by your glory? And yeah, there's going to be earthquakes. And yes, there's going to be aftershocks. And some are going to come and some are going to come back. But God's glory never changes. Amen. He wins. 
And so there's this joy for me as I was studying these past couple weeks, getting ready for today's text, because that's what I see in the city of Philadelphia, the new Caesarea, because the reality is this, Jesus doesn't promise us a new empire town, he promises us a new kingdom, amen? He promises us something that no matter how much power Caesar had, he couldn't give this small town. He promises us relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three in one. And so that's the audience of Philadelphia. Here's the author, Jesus. Jesus is the one that's been giving these oracles. He's the one that's been speaking to the churches. Here's how John records it. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write these things. These are the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David. Now, when he says this, regularly we see this reference back to chapter one as we've been walking through chapters two and three. Chapters two and three are seven letters that Jesus gives to his churches, mainly big cities plus Philadelphia. Now, on both sides of chapters two and three in Revelation, this matters. We have this beautiful picture of Jesus in chapter one. In fact, every one of the churches, the seven letters, there's a reference back to this beautiful picture of Jesus in chapter one. He's glorious. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of our worship. After the seven churches, after Easter, we'll be in chapter four. Guess what we're gonna see? A beautiful picture of Jesus. That he's glorious, that he's worthy of all praise. And here's the call to these seven churches. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss what God is doing in your midst. Don't miss that he's worthy of praise. And so every one of the seven letters points back to a chapter one definition, except for this one. This one's a little more vague. He kind of references all of it. I think what he's referencing is Jesus as a whole has the authority and the power that nobody else has. He has this authority and power. He's beautiful and worthy of praise. He holds the keys of Hades, is what chapter 118 says. He holds the keys of the new kingdom. He holds the keys of opportunity. And so that's what we see in the text. He says, Jesus is the holy one. That's in reference to Rome, which had a lot of holy ones. Rome worshiped a ton of gods. And what does Jesus say? I'm the holy one. There isn't more than one. I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. None of these other false gods will actually be worthy of praise. And so he says he's set apart from the gods of Rome. He has the power of life and of death, and he is one. That's what Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, that he and Yahweh are one. And he's calling them to stand firm in the midst of of an onslaught of persecution. Philadelphia might be unique from the other cities, but the uniqueness is not in the context of Rome. Rome is the power of the day, and Rome is persecuting them for their faith. So he says, guys, don't miss this. I alone have the key of David. I am the only one that opens and no one will shut the door. Who shuts it, no one will open. I have the power of life and of death and of every opportunity in between. And so as he talks about his authority and his power, then he goes on and he says this. We talk about my power. I know your power. I I love these verses. If you're insecure because you don't think that you have power compared to Jesus, guess what? You're in a good spot. If you're insecure because you're like, man, I just don't have the power to save the world. Guess what? You don't. Like, can I just tell you to just take a deep breath? I think way too often in America, we take ourselves way too seriously and we don't take Jesus seriously enough. Pay attention to what he says here. I have the power of life and death. I'm the one that has the keys to Haiti. And he goes on, he says this, I know your works. Now, does that scare anybody else if God knows our works? Because we like live in this Facebook fake world where we only post the pictures when everyone's perfect, right? Jesus says, hey, Drew, I know your works. Now, if you're that person like, I don't know, do do you do things just so someone else can see you do them? Like, do you only wash the dishes when your wife is watching? Or is that just me sometimes? This is a moment of public confession, right? (laughs) Jesus says, I know your works. I know your heart. I know what you've done. I know what you haven't done. I know what you've done begrudgingly. I know what you've done with anger in your heart. 
And pay attention, this is one of the two churches he doesn't say, repent. This is one of the only ones that he says, no, no, no. But I want you to pay attention. I know your works. Behold, I have set before an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. Church, take a deep breath. Jesus already knows we have but little power. He already knows that. He's not going around the world going, oh my goodness, the world is a train wreck. What am I gonna do? I sure wish Vintage Grace would do something. He knows Philadelphia. He knows us and every church in between. And he says, church, I know your works and I know that you don't have a lot of power. Here's the good news. It's not about your power. It's about mine. He goes on, he says this, but, but yet here's what you do have. Here's what I love about you. You've kept my word. Church, this is all we have to offer each other, the word of God. This is where the power is in the person of Jesus and the word became flesh and he calls us to live in accordance to word. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Here's part of what he says, your works versus my works. If you're insecure about your works, that makes sense, but you can never be insecure about my works because my works takes dead things and make them alive again, amen? He says, not only my works, but also my name, because here's the reality. If you live your life faithfully, someone may never know your name, but if they know the name of Jesus, guess what? We win. It's not about your name. It's not about your power. It's not about your works. It's about the name of Jesus. And Jesus knows your name. He knows your name. And he actually tells us he's going to give us a new name. And that's what I love about this text. So we come off of his power and he says, let's lean in to your power. And you're like, yeah, my power's not very good. That's okay. Because when you are weak, he is what? Strong. Because when you're strong, you're like, look what I did. Everyone looks at you. And yet in the kingdom of God, what is the only thing that matters to us? Him. Paul knows this better than anybody. Now, Paul was one of those guys that I'm convinced we at Vintage and even those who were his friends, we still struggle at times with what he says because he lives so much in the kingdom that he doesn't, he only has like one tippy toe in the empire. Everything in his life is about the glory of God, the name of Jesus and the kingdom of God moving forward. Here's just a couple of verses from, from Paul. Colossians chapter four, I know your works. Behold, I have set before an open door that no one will be able to shut. Here's how Paul said it. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open the door for us for what? The word. Paul said, all I care about right now is that God would open a door so that the word of God would go forward. And so he writes to a church that he loves here in Colossians. He says this, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in what? Prison. Paul was in prison a lot. Remember, he had like that frequent flyer card. He would just like scan his card. He'd be like, I'm back. Now, why was Paul in prison so much? Because he did what? He preached the gospel. And so regularly, could you imagine his friends being like, hey, Paul, I got a good plan for you. You don't want to go to prison? Then don't preach the gospel. Here's the problem. Paul's like, my goal was never to not go to prison. My goal was always that the name of Jesus would be proclaimed. And so if as I proclaim the name of Jesus, I keep going to prison, well, guess what? Would you just get me the punch card and so we can become a frequent flyer, right? Like, I'm in. And so that's what Paul tells the church and the church is wrestling with that. And they're like, wait, I don't understand how this works. This is the kingdom of God. The throne of your heart has vacancy for how many people? One. And so if Jesus sits there, now your life is all about his glory. And it is about your good, but it's about his glory. Paul goes on to the church of Corinth. He says this, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, all I care about is doors being open. And every time a door is open, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna tell you how awesome Jesus is because that's all that matters. But Paul, it's going to hurt you. That's okay, because he saved me. I mean, I want you to think about the gospel. Here's what the gospel says. You want to save your life? Well, then for the sake of Jesus, you better be ready to what? Lose it. 
lay it down. Paul goes on in Corinthians, he says this, for a wide door was opened for effective work, that the gospel would be preached, that the gospel would be proclaimed, and this door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, church, can we just pause for a moment? We just got done with like a two-year series in the gospel of John, and we called the gospel of John what? Anybody remember the hashtag? The good life. Did we ever say it was the easy life? No, Jesus never says the easy life. Think about Jesus' sales pitch to his disciples. Go read the gospels. He says, drop your nets, change everything, pick up your cross and follow me. That's what he tells them to do. He says, put me on the throne of your heart, follow me. And they're like, Jesus, where are we, are we going to the Warriors game? This is awesome. Where are we going to go? Where does Jesus go eventually? The cross. He goes to die. He goes to lay down his life. Jesus says, follow me. He says, if you follow me, they're probably going to want to beat you, but it's not about you. It's about me. They're probably going to want to stone you, but it's not about you. It's about me. They're probably going to throw you into prison and you might get shipwrecked. But guys, this is the good life. This is not the easy life, but the good life is worth it. Amen. And so Paul believes this. John believes this. We see it in the gospels. We see it here in Revelation. Jesus says, I know your works. I've actually set before you an open door right now. Wait, wait, Jesus, are you saying that I might be beaten for the gospel? That's exactly what he's telling the church of Philadelphia. Remember that this was a letter written to them. And in the church of Philadelphia, there was massive persecution taking place. Why? Because the empire, Rome specifically, was saying, if you don't bow down to Caesar as Lord, you will die. So you choose, do you want to die or do you want to live? And here's what Paul chose. And many in the church of Philadelphia and many people after all throughout the Roman Empire, here's what they chose. If I must die to choose the name of Jesus, well, then let me kiss my rope as I go. Then, then where is the cross? Then where is the sword? Where do I sign up? It was true in the early church. This was their heart. And he says this, but guys, this is an open door which no one is able to shut. The kingdom of God is available. Now, again, when we read the open door, there's two options here. Is this the open door of salvation or is this the open door of opportunity? I think the correct answer is yes. I, I like that. We believe in embracing level tensions as a church. Commentators go back and forth. Is the open door the door to the kingdom of God? Is it the door to, to Jesus and to heaven itself? I think yes. Who opens that door? Jesus says life is death and his resurrection. That's who opens that door. Only he could open it. No good works would have gotten you there. No amount of effort would have gotten you there. Jesus opens that door through Easter. Now, beyond that, is there also a door of opportunity? Yeah, I think that's also what he's saying. He's saying to this church, he's saying, look, yes, you are small. Yes, your works might seem insignificant, but I win, and through my life, death, and resurrection, through my church, I'm giving you guys a red paperclip. I'm giving you guys an opportunity and a moment in history and time that 2,000 years later, there's gonna be this church in Eldorado Hills that's gonna talk about you because you're gonna be faithful because you're gonna pray, watch, and step wherever that is. Is it prison? Is it death? It's faithfulness. And so here's what we see in the text. He says, I've opened this door. No one's able to shut the door of salvation. No one's able to shut the kingdom of God from advancing. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word, you've kept my name, and you have not denied it. And so here's what we see as he says, the door of salvation is open. He says, do you trust me? Do you treasure me? Now, if you're like me, that answer is always, well, not enough. Jesus, I trust you but not enough. And so he's encouraging the church, church, be faithful. The persecution's still coming, be faithful. Now at this point, I feel like Jesus kind of takes a pit stop. I, I see this often in preachers. I see it in myself. They're talking in a frame and a kind of a flow of thought and they're like, wait, wait, one more thing. Jesus adds one thing here in verse nine. It's almost like this parenthetical thought. He says this, behold. Now remember, one of the big ideas of Revelation is to see the things that are not yet seen. 
to see the present truth and to see the future truth that you don't yet know to be reality. He says this, behold, I want you to see, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, they lie. Behold, I want you to see this. Now again, remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. When he says Satan, I can't have you think about the the pitchfork and the, the devil with ears, right? He's got these horns and red face. That's not what he's referencing. What does the word Satan mean? Anybody remember? Deceiver, slanderer. Now, what's happening to the church all throughout the Roman Empire right now is that Christians are saying, I am not going to bow my knee to Caesar. Caesar has told them, if you don't bow your knee to Caesar, well, then I'm going to make you bow and I'm going to kill you. And so the Jews who, again, right now at this point, these are Jews that do not trust and treasure Jesus. They're working with Rome and they're literally selling the Christians out. They're literally saying, don't ruin my deal with you in the Roman Empire, but I'll help you find these Christians. And so Christians are being turned in by Jews and it's leading to their death. And so here's what we see Jesus say. He's writing and he's talking to the early church. He says this, guys, I want you to see this. Remember, behold and see the synagogue of Satan. It's not Satan himself. It's those people who have been deceived, who have been slandered, who are actually running around and turning you in and leading to your death. Behold, I want you to see this. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. There's this upside down kingdom. You're not bowing to Caesar. Because you bow to me, you're gonna die. But if you die in me, you will actually live. At the end of the world, there's gonna be this reality. He says this, I'm gonna make those same people that sold you out and led to your death, I'm gonna actually make them come and bow down before your feet. Why? Because they will learn that I've loved you. Now, this is significant. Do any of you guys struggle in the midst of suffering to just be faithful? Right, when someone says, but I love you, and you're like, God, if this is what love looks like, would you please love somebody else? Has anyone ever said that to Jesus or just me? Right? Like, do I trust you, Jesus? Do I believe that your better is better? And if you're like me, the answer to that is not enough. Do I trust you? Do I believe? And so here's what Jesus is telling the church. Guys, guys, here's the problem. You might have to die for your faith, but there's going to come a day where you will never die again. There's going to come a day when even those who persecuted you, even those who slandered you, even those who lied and deceived you and those around you, that they're gonna give an account. And I love this because Jesus loves his people. Here's what we see throughout the Old Testament in 1 Kings, he's talking specifically about Israel. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. I think it's important when they're in the midst of a trial to say, we're gonna win. There's no setbacks in the kingdom. There's nothing happening outside of God's plan. And so there were moments in the story of Israel where it looked like Israel was losing. And so the father would graciously give them prophecy and words of encouragement say, guys, there's gonna come a day where you're gonna receive the throne. Why? Because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king so that you may execute justice and righteousness. Later on in Psalms, he says this, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Here's what he says over and over in the Old Testament. Israel, I love you. There's gonna be moments of your life that you're gonna forget that. There's gonna be moments of your life that you're gonna think that, that I've turned my back on you. Actually, you've turned your back on me, but I will not turn my back on you. He says this in Ezra, and they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house was the Lord that who was laid. This is why I love gathering on Sunday mornings where we sing songs. We're working on our muscle memory is what we're doing. We're giving God glory. I'm pretty confident no one walked in here with a perfect life, but we all walked in here to worship a perfect God. Amen? That there's gaps in our life, that there's struggle in our life, that people may be slandering us, they may be lying about us, or they may just be telling the truth, and we just really are broken people. 
There's brokenness in our lives, in our heads, in our hearts, in our hands. Like how many of you guys have marriages that are messed up? Anybody? Okay, I don't know why all your hands aren't up unless you're single, that's great. But if you're not single, you have a broken marriage. If you have children, how many of you guys got in a fight on your way to church this morning? Anybody? Like, it's the Easter egg hunt. Get in the car. Jesus needs us. Guys, that's the problem. He doesn't need us. He loves us. He wants us to be faithful, but he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to pretend that we've got it all figured out. We are not loved because of what we've done. We're loved because of what he's done for us. Amen? And so he reminds Israel in the Old Testament, and he's reminding these Christians in the New Testament, the same truth is true. I love you. And there's going to be gaps, and there's going to be pain in your life, and there's going to be moments in your life that it's going to hurt. And you're going to be like, God, have you abandoned me? Do not listen to the deceiver. He is with you, and he is for you. He is with you in the midst of your brokenness. He will not abandon you when we must remember the truth of God and of the good news. He continues on and building on verse eight, verse 10. Here's what he says. Because you have kept my word. It's the second time he said it. I know your works. It might be small and insignificant, but you've kept my word. You've been faithful in the midst of suffering. He says, because you kept my word. Now we've used these circles as this picture of, of what's taking place in the early church here. They were residents of the empire. They got off the throne of their heart. They pursued the kingdom and the kingdom pursued them. And now they're living in this gap between the empire and the kingdom. And what happens when those two worlds collide? We call that solipsis, suffering. It's suffering of when we come out of the empire and we step into our kingdom residency and there's this suffering. And again, when I'm in the midst of suffering, what I want Jesus to tell me is, Drew, it's gonna be okay. Drew, it's going to be okay. I'm going to fix your marriage the way that you want. Drew, I'm going to fix your kids. Drew, I'm going to fix the fact that you don't have kids. Drew, I'm going to come alongside you, and I'm going to just sit with you and, and be with you. And what I want to hear Jesus say is, and then I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to take away your problems. And I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says here in verse 10. What does Jesus tell the early church in the midst of their suffering, kingdom and empire colliding together, leading to their physical death? I want Jesus to say, it's okay, church, you're not gonna die. What does Jesus say? Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming from the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. He doesn't say you're not gonna die a physical death. I'm like, Jesus, what the heck? I'll be faithful if you give me what I want. And yet Jesus faithfully gives us what we need. He actually says this, no, I'm gonna allow you to die, but I'm gonna create in you a clean heart so that you never die and thirst and hunger again. That's what he says. He says, every one of us, the reality of judgment and wrath is coming. Again, how do I know that mercy is a part of our life right now? Because you're breathing. Because sin separates us from God. And yet God, for a season of time, has forbeared his mercy and his wrath, and he's given us mercy and grace. He hasn't put his wrath on us yet to date in the way that we all deserve. Who deserves the wrath of God? Romans says all are guilty. All of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And for a season, he is being patient and he is wooing us. And he's calling us back to himself. And so here's what Jesus says. He doesn't say to the, the persecuted church, he doesn't say, you're not gonna be persecuted anymore. He says, no, be ready to die for your faith. But if you're ready to die for your faith, here's what you do get. You get me and I will keep my word. And my word is this, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. There will be a day of judgment where you will face your creator face to face and he will say, Drew, why should I let you into my heaven? And there's an answer for you and me in this moment. If it's Jesus... In that moment, we get grace. Now, did God's wrath get paid? It absolutely got paid. It got paid to Jesus. His wrath was poured out on Jesus for you and for me. And so here's what he says. If you will faithfully follow me and it may lead to your death, I will faithfully die for you. 
That's the gospel. It's the great exchange. And so he says this, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming that the whole world will have to give an account for. I will try those who dwell on earth. And there's this collision that takes place. And so he's encouraging the church, be faithful. Don't run away because if you're like me, we run away from pain. And instead God says, no, I'm gonna allow this pain in your life. I'm gonna allow this brokenness into your life. I have the habit of redeeming everything. I have the power of making dead things become alive again. Be faithful, be faithful, be faithful. He says this, I am coming soon. Church, I pray as we've been studying Revelation, there's been an urgency for the kingdom of God. I pray that we haven't been reading Revelation being like, well, that's a nice story. Jesus says, I am coming when? Soon. I do absolutely believe that that was true then and it's true now. He says, I am coming soon, so hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, if you're like me, there's gaps in your life that you pray about, right? You pray about the gaps in your marriage. You pray about the gaps in your family. You pray about these gaps. And you often say this prayer like I always have. I say, God, here's where I am. Get me out of here and take me over there, right? That's my prayer life. Get me out of the gap. And here's what Jesus says. No, no, no. The real prayer is, Jesus, would you meet me in the gap? Would you hang out with me in the gap? Would you redeem the gap for your glory? It was very similar when Jen was like, hey, you want to plant in Berkeley? That sounds great. You do that. I'm going to go live in the suburbs of Sacramento. And I'm like, that's a long commute. And so what does Moses tell, to tell the father when the father says, go in the promised land, I'm just not going to be there. And what does Moses say? It's not the promised land then. I don't want to go there if you're not there. So often we're saying, God, get me out of the gaps in my life. And Jesus is like, I'm going to use the gap in your life for my glory and for your good. And so the persecuted church says, God, get me out. And here's what God says. No, no, no. I'm going to let you stay there because you're going to prove your faith. You don't earn your faith. You're going to prove that I gave it to you and you're going to lay down your life. Why? Because I absolutely believe that our pain is redeemed for his purposes. Because I absolutely believe in the reality that but God has not buried us under the weight of this world. Instead, he's planted us to bring the gospel to this world. So if you're ever overwhelmed by the depression of this world, I'm with you, I get it. I think Paul gets it, I think John gets it, I think Jesus gets it. And what does Jesus say? He says, guys, I'm gonna save you from this world, but until that day, please hear me, go tell people about me. Go tell them about me because your pain is repurposed for his glory. And so often we want to be led out of the gap and Jesus says, no, I have something very specific for you in the gap. Here's what he says. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, Seven times he tells us this in this first half of the book. Seven times. He wants us to be people that patiently endure. The word means to stay under. Not to get out of the gap, but to stay under the gap. Because Jesus' promise is not to remove them from martyrdom, but his promise is to shield them from the wrath that they deserve, and yet Christ receives for them. This last phrase here in verse 11, I am coming to you soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now again, lots of ideas here you can pull apart in life group. But here's how I think John is telling us what Jesus says. How many of you guys have ever gone tubing on the back of a boat? We used to live in a beautiful town called Eldorado Hills and there was a lake in our backyard, right? Lake Folsom. Now it's a puddle by a prison. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so we used to go tubing it's kind of that time of the year when we'd go tubing on the back of the boat and we loved going tubing and my daughter and I would love to go on the boat and my wife would drive the boat and, and she would toss us all over. And I would tell Peyton, I would say, Peyton, hold on to dad. Hold on to dad. Now again, she did it with all of her might. She was holding on as sweet as she could. I got you, daddy, I got you. But we all know what was really taking place. Dad was holding on to her. At the end of a hard ride, she'd be like, dad, we did it. And I'm like, we did, baby girl. We did it. 
And the whole time it was the father holding fast. So don't misunderstand. We are saved not because we hold fast to him, but because he holds fast to us. Amen. And yet as he's clinging us, he says, hold on to me, baby girl. Don't let go. The gap is real. It's hard. It's difficult, but I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to use it for my glory and for your good. Hold fast that no one might seize your crown. And I love this last verse. Here's how he ends to the church. He says this, to the one who conquers. Church, whatever your gap is right now, that marriage, that family situation, that financial situation, that job, whatever it is, please don't miss this. You are more than a conqueror in Christ who gives you grace. That every time, over and over and over again, he's been saying that seven churches, he closes every appeal to the church to this reality. Seven churches, seven times to the one who conquers. Here's the things that he's already told us. This is a big deal, church. How many of you guys have gaps in your life? Anybody? Here's the message Jesus has for you right now. You will eat from the tree of life someday. You will not be hurt by the second death. You will be given a white stone, which is this verdict of not guilty. You will be reigning with Christ on the throne someday. You will be given the morning star. You will have a name in the book of life. Somebody say amen. He's holding on to you. There's a broken, dark world that we live in, and he puts us here in the world, in America, because here's the reality. Every empire is going to fall. Babylon fell. Persia came. Persia fell. Rome was there. Rome falls. America's here. America will fall. It's the truth of the gospel. We were not made for an empire, but we were made for a kingdom to worship and follow a king, and in his kingdom, he gives you conquering. He gives you grace and he gives you mercy and he gives you life. And the message to Philadelphia is, yeah, you're small. Yeah, you might think you're insignificant, but your God is good. And your God is moving to you and through you. And I love this. He keeps telling us these promises. And to the church of Philadelphia, he gives us three promises. He says in verse 12, you will be made a pillar in God's temple. Don't miss the significance. This was a city where they would build pillars and earthquakes would come. And what would happen to the pillars? They'd go away. He's going to build a kingdom that nothing in this world can take or shake. He's going to make you into a pillar. That's what he says to the apostles. He did not recruit his, his amazing team that were all all-stars. He recruited a bunch of knuckleheads. That's who he did. And he worked through them to change the world, to build the church that they would be pillars in God's temple that would never crumble, that we would now get to participate in this new Jerusalem. There is a day coming, church, when there will be no more tears, no more broken marriages, no more cancer, no more death. That day is coming. And if you trust Jesus, it's for you. That you're a conqueror. That you're a part of his kingdom, a pillar that it's coming down from heaven and he's making all things new. Now, now those are corporate things. And I love that, that we're a part of something bigger. I, I love Facebook. I see on Facebook this week, a bunch of life groups went over to a, a single woman in our church and just built her a gazebo. I love that. I love seeing Ming after her baptism. Lou, I saw you somewhere. I just haven't seen you yet. But I love that reality that God is working corporately to us and through us, that lives are being changed because you're being faithful. But it's also a personal promise. Not just that we get to corporately be a part of a joyful community of faith, but he says this, I will have God's name written on them. God's name is on you and your name is in the book of life. Your name, not because you hung on to Jesus on the tube ride, but because he hung on to you three times. He's been telling us that you are now new citizens with the new identity. And all these promises were present, but they're also future. They're all coming. The day is coming where he will make all things right. And it won't be because you've earned it, it's because he wore the weight of your sin and father's wrath. So what are the implications? Here's the first one. Church, look. There's an open door. 
maybe you've been at Vintage for a while now, you've been coming for a long time, and maybe this is your first time here, it's Easter egg hunt day. I dressed like an Easter egg just for that purpose, right? Like, and, and here's, maybe you're just a guest. You're like, I don't know, my friend invited me. No, no, God invited you because there's an open door for salvation. There's an open door for you to pray and to step through and for God to say, I love you because here's the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is simply this, that God designed us all with a throne in our heart, that, that in the beginning, God sat on the throne of our heart and life was good. But in the garden, Adam and Eve and you and me and everyone in between, not God off the throne of our heart, we call that sin. We call that not trusting that God's better is better. And there was separation between us and God, and yet God loved the world so much that what did he do? He sent his son. He gave him. He gave him as a gift and as a ransom the perfect life that we could not live to to die the heinous death that we deserve to die. And so if you're like, man, I don't know everything that this sweaty man's talking about on stage right now, but here's what I know. I just wish I was a little happier. I just wish that the gaps in my life would, would go away. That's God calling you to a new life. That's God saying, there's something better for you. And it's when I sit on the throne of your heart, not you sit on that seat. There's only space for one. And so can I just encourage you to look for the open door? It's right in front of you. So if you don't trust and treasure Jesus yet, would you put that on your connect card? Would you talk to the friend that invited you? Would you talk to someone that you saw on stage or the connect card and just say, hey, like, I don't know what that sweaty guy was talking about because he talks too fast, but like, there seems to be this joy at this church and I want some of that. And we're gonna introduce you to Jesus because he is the hero, because he is the savior of the world. And that is why that we endure. Now, again, if you've already made that decision and I look out and I see most of our church family and I know you've made that decision, church, don't miss this. Look for an open door of opportunity. They're both true. There's a door of salvation that we must walk through. And once we walk through that door, now there's doors of opportunity all over the place. I wanna invite you to grab that red paper clip. You've been holding on to it. I think way too often we miss the things that are right around us. We miss it because we're like, ah, it's just a paperclip. It's not significant. And yet there's opportunities all around us. Heaven is all around. Part of why I love this story of the red paperclip is because trade number 12 was a really bad trade. I stopped at 10, but number 10 went to 11. He traded this one year of rent in Phoenix for this rent deal. He traded that for a full day with Alice Cooper. And everyone's like, well, that's weird, but it's unique. So that's cool. And then he made a really bad trade. In fact, if you read like the tweets and the blogs and the articles after he made trade number 11, he traded that day with Alice Cooper for a snow globe. Yes, what a terrible trade. I mean, all these are, what a stupid guy. He had this great thing going and now he did this. Here's what I love. Cause again, if you don't know the author of the story, you don't know where it's going next. See, what happened was two months before, there was this famous actor by the name of Corbin Bernson who has the largest snow globe collection in the world, 6,500 snow globes. Pray for that guy. He clearly has some issues, right? Like, and he told this guy, Kyle, as he was doing this game, he told him, hey, if you can find me some really unique snow globes, I will trade you a globe traded for a film role in one of my future films that I'm in the middle of. And again, who wants to be an actor? Everybody. You're not. Chill out. But everybody wants to be. And so he traded this day with Alice Cooper for this this snow globe that he already had a plan. I don't know about you guys, but I love that God already has a plan. Amen? Way too often in my life, I'm like, God, if you would just consult with me first, we could do so much more work, Jesus. You only laugh because that's true for you too, right? Whether it's cancer or the marriage or the kids that you never got, whether it's the infidelity or the insecurity, 
whether it's the fact that you don't have what you want and when you want it, do we trust that God's better is better? Sometimes. Sometimes we trust, but it always is. And so I love this story because, of course, it was that role in the film that led him to trade for a house. And so the word of Jesus to the church in Philadelphia was, Behold, I want you to see what's taking place. The day is coming when you will reign victoriously with me. Yeah, but Jesus, it doesn't feel like that right now. Here's a good thing. Your feelings don't drive me. I drive me, Jesus says. And my better is better. Do you trust me? Do you trust me and do you see the open door? And church, part of why I get emotional being your pastor is because y'all live like missionaries. It's not that we gather that's so significant at Vintage. It's that we scatter. It's that we go because heaven is all around us because he is making a way when there is no other way. I want to invite my buddy up. Where is he at? You got to hustle, man. Show show me. You're, You're a club soccer player. Give me some work here. This is my buddy Ford. And Ford and I go way back. In fact, Ford was dedicated at Vintage Grace eight years ago, man. Eight years ago, you got dedicated, and now you're this young man. He's an, one of our elementary students, and Ford actually just recently applied for one of our missional grants. I want to give you this paper clip. And so we do missional grants twice a year. We just closed the season in the month of March. We'll do it again in the month of September, October. Ford applied for one, and I love this, because way too often we're like, well, I'll do something later in life for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here, amen? amen. The opportunities are all around us. So Ford, why did you apply for a missional grant? Um, because I want to do a murder mystery party for um, a little bit of time now, and I thought about how some of my friends are Christians and some of them aren't, and maybe I could reach out and God could reach out to them through a party. And so what did you want to do then? So you filled this missional grant to, to do a murder mystery. Now, what were you hoping to do? Um, maybe make stronger friendships and maybe see how happy our family is and how fun the party was. Maybe think about how we're Christians. Maybe God, God could draw close to them. And in a dream world, as we get up towards this, because Ford just found out that he got a missional grant this week. So we were talking earlier this week. He just found out that he got the grant. And so he's going to host this murder mystery party. What do you plan on doing before the party? Um, we're going to pray for them on the days leading up to the party. And then after, just um, hoping to make stronger friendships and um, lifelong friends. And maybe they can think, maybe think about coming to Hume Lake or youth group next year. And everybody said? So, so church, our heart is simply this. You see the word sent and send everywhere at our church because we're sending disciple makers like Ford and like you. Yeah, but I just got a red paper clip. Okay. What's God going to do with that? What is God going to do for his glory and for your good? And so we've talked about like the pray watch list and what does it mean to pray and watch and step. And I love this. You know, he's going to go throw a party. Christians, we need to throw more parties for Jesus. Amen. Like, like seriously, what did Jesus do? He went to the party. He was the party. He was the joy in Jesus. You heard what Ford said. Again, I, I didn't coach him at all in these answers. I hope that they see how happy our family is. Now, you know what they're going to see? I'm good friends with their family. They're going to see how broken and messed up they are too, right? And that's okay, because we're not the heroes. Jesus is. And he's using you. And so thank you. Get out of here. The thing I love about serving as your pastor is simply this. Ford is one of many missionaries that's fighting for his joy in Jesus, that's saying, yeah, life's not perfect, it's broken. But for the sake of the gospel, I'll do anything to see the kingdom of God here in my town. Amen? I'll wear Dodgers jerseys in sermons. You know how deeply offensive that is for me as a Giants fan? 
Like we'll throw Easter egg hunts. We'll give missional grants. We'll do anything. We'll start to look at the thalipsis in our life and say, God, my brokenness, my pain is your platform. My pain is a moment and opportunity for me to preach the gospel, sometimes with words and sometimes with actions. And here's what Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia. Keep being faithful. You're doing a great job. Cling to the word. May the word cling to you. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Church, Easter is every day. He's alive. He is risen. He is a way maker and he is making a way. Church, would you stand as we celebrate that truth today through song? Let's sing. Thank you for joining us for our Revelation series. As you go this week, be comforted by the knowledge that God is in control and he desires nothing more than for you to find full and complete joy in him. See you next week.